Somewhere uh, along the way, we eventually learned that it's impossible to solve a problem when you don't know what is wrong to begin with. Uh, we've all tried to do this. Uh, I was actually talking just last night with some friends about an awesome car that I had when I was 17. It was a 72 Cutlass with a 354 barrel with the added bonus of a racing transmission. And off the line, it was a beast. It would actually top out around 130 miles an hour, which is what every 17-year-old should be driving, right? Uh, and at some point in owning that car, I, would, I noticed that when I would brake, it didn't have the same stopping power that it had, and it made this really weird grinding noise. And again, at 17, I hadn't learned a lot about cars. I wasn't sure what that sound was or how to fix it, but, you know, it would still stop, so I just turned up the radio, problem fixed, you know, no more sound. Uh, then, but one day I had to get my stepdad a ride in my car, and as soon as uh, we were like pulling out of the subdivision, he heard the sound. He's like, "Chad, oh my gosh! Like, how long has this been making that sound?" I'm like, "Oh, like a few weeks now." He's like, "Are you kidding? That means your brake pads are gone. Like, you're metal to metal. You're grinding into your rotors. Well, what's a rotor? It's just you know." And so, and you know, I didn't like know what to do. I didn't know how to fix it, but he taught me how to do it. And the thing is that. Uh, it's impossible to solve a problem if you don't realize it is a problem or begin to know what to, what to do about it. So here's the deal. For most of us, when it comes to us, when it comes to us, you know, we know, we know there's a problem. It's like the check engine, is, check engine light is on, but that light alone, like it could be a million things and it's a little like overwhelming to look at. And like there was actually, I had a car one time, I actually just, because I couldn't figure out what it was, so I put like a little black piece of electrical tape over it so I couldn't see it, problem solved. You know, and some of you like, that's just kind of your approach. I mean, there's just things about you, you just ignore it or you just give up and, you know, just turn up the music louder, problem solved. And, and the truth is that many of you have been trying to solve you for a long time. Many of you have spent money trying to solve you. Many of you have had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or been in a relationship or married to someone who said, hey, you need to go talk to someone to fix you because there's a problem and either you get fixed or I'm done because you've got a problem. Some of you have broken relationships in the past because you haven't been able to solve something about you. Some of you have lost jobs because of something about you. Some of you have lost marriages or lost a relationship because of something about you that you couldn't fix. Some of you have lost money, maybe a lot of money, a lot of sleep, a lot of time because there was something about you. Maybe you lost self-esteem or you lost a reputation. Maybe you lost a relationship with a child or with a parent because there's just something about you. And deep down, you know, you know you're part of the problem. You know you have a problem, but no matter what you try, you just can't seem to solve it. And the problem may be that you don't know what the problem is may be. Now, because you are smart and sophisticated and educated, you have a theory. And maybe you've even been to counseling and had a counselor tell you, hey, here's what the problem is. But the painful reality that we all eventually discover is that knowing what the problem is is not the same as having a solution. And if you're applying a solution to the wrong problem, that won't get you anywhere either. So the point of this series, Free, is that I'm going to offer an explanation I'm going to offer an explanation as to what's wrong with you and what's wrong with me and uh, based on what the Apostle Paul taught in the New Testament. And this is one of my favorite parts of the New Testament because in this one, one passage, it's just exceptional. And in this exceptional passage, it just reminds me that I am not alone in my struggle with myself and neither are you. 
Now, you may not like his diagnosis of you. You may not be a Bible person or a Christian. Uh, You may be like, you know, that's exactly what I expect somebody from a church to say, and that's okay. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with him, but you hopefully you will at least acknowledge that it's true, that it's true that it's hard for you to fix you in spite of what you've read, in spite of what you've been told and what you've been taught, what you've done and tried, and you think, you know, even in spite of what people have told me to do, there's just something broken about me. So to help, beginning today, we're going to look through several chapters of the book of Romans to learn what is actually wrong with us, and then we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at the solution. And if you've ever tried to read the book of Romans, it is not the easiest book to read. Uh, the, it's difficult to read and understand, and I will explain why in a moment. But we're going to be in Romans 5 if you want to follow along in your Bible or your Bible app. But to get us all on the same page, I, I want to read you a description that actually comes a little later from Romans 7, where the Apostle Paul explains his understanding of the problem that we're going to talk about today. And it's a problem that I believe we can all relate to. He writes, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, this I do. Now, many of you, like this is fresh because just a few weeks ago, uh, several weeks ago, we used this as a launching point into an excellent, uh, excellent and uncomfortably accurate personality profiling tool, the Enneagram, that through that, we just learn to better understand our personality and what motivates us and our uh, temperament types, and that's so helpful. But now we're going to dig even deeper because this is the root challenge. This is more foundational than just a personality type or a temperament. And while knowing and understanding why, what our personality type is and the challenges that come along with that, while it's helpful, it's not a solution. And even armed, even armed with the knowledge of what motivates us, it only makes so much progress because, as I said, if you try to apply a solution to the wrong problem, it doesn't get you anywhere. So he says... I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now, this could be the Bible law. It could be whatever religion you're part of law. It could be law of society. It might be just your own personal internal law. You know, you may or may not be a religious person, but there is something in you that guides you. There's something in you that guides you to where you feel like you shouldn't do this or you should do this. And here's what I know about you, even if I've never met you. You don't even consistently do what you think you ought to do. I mean, forget the Bible or church or God or any of that or what your partner or your parents or what anyone says. You internally have a sense of this is what I ought to do, but sometimes you just don't do it. And sometimes you just don't do it, and and it's like you have a split personality. It's like the one side says, here's what I ought to do. I'd be better off. I'd be healthier. I'd be a better boyfriend, a better girlfriend. I'd be a better spouse or a husband, a better wife or a mom, a better human in general. Here's what I ought to do. And yet there are many times you just simply choose to not do, based on your own sense of right and wrong, what you should do. And you might have some explanation as to why that is. And the Apostle Paul, he's about to tell us what his explanation is, what he thinks it is. Now, before we read the rest of his dilemma, the reason that I think that we should take Paul seriously 
is because he was friends with Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and he spent time with people who sat under the teachings of Jesus, and God chose Paul specifically to take the significance of the crucifixion and the resurrection and to tease it out, the, to, tease it out to the implications of our day-to-day life, our everyday lives. And he's, he spent time with followers of Jesus, and as he listened to them talk about what Jesus taught, he ended up coming to some powerful conclusions some powerful conclusion as to what our problem is and what the solution is. And he ties it all back to this struggle that we can all relate to. He says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do, this I do. This I keep on doing. And again, you may disregard the Bible as a myth or whatever, but let's face it, we all believe this part of the Bible. And we can all at least relate to it. So here's the question for you. Why? Why don't you do what you're supposed to do? Why don't we do what we're supposed to do? What's wrong with you? Okay, I mean, imagine how great it would be, like, if you could come in here this morning or just log on, we'd have like five or six, maybe seven really cool songs, and then I would just get up and go, stop it. Just stop it. And you know what? Then I would pray, and then we'd all go have tacos together. It'd be like, what a great Sunday. It's just, that would be great. The sermons would be so short, you wouldn't need your Bible or a Bible app. You know, you just take, here's your, be your notes, like, stop this, start this continue. Okay, got it. Let's go grab something to eat. I mean, seriously, do you need me or anyone else to tell you what you ought to do? Like, really? Like, do you really need another diet book? Okay, do you really need somebody to tell you that you shouldn't look at certain stuff online, that it just pollutes your mind and it wrecks your intimate relationship with someone, maybe your spouse? Do you really need someone to tell you that sex is more than physical? Do you really need somebody to say, study harder? Do you really need somebody to say, you know, pay now, play later? Uh, Do you really need any more advice? Do you need any more self-help books or blogs or podcasts? I mean, there's so many of them. And the problem isn't that we don't know what to do. The problem is, is that we can't figure out how to consistently do what we know we should do. It's like we can train dogs to do things, but we can't train us Like, I can housebreak a dog, but I can't housebreak me, figuratively, not literally. So so it's like we're going to go through the book of Romans, a letter written primarily to Jewish men and women who had become believers in Rome, and his letter is complicated. And one of the reasons that Romans is complicated is because Paul probably didn't write this letter, he dictated it. And they didn't have delete and erase and backspace and cut and paste, and I mean, they didn't even have whiteout. Okay, there was no like, oh, actually, what I said here, this would be better up here, and this would be better over here. And so he's dictating this very complicated theological treatise. And sometimes Paul, he just goes off on rabbit trails, and I can relate. That's why I write down everything word for word. He like starts in one place, then he goes on, off on a different subject. He's like, oh, I need to come back and finish this. And, and we just know this happened in his speaking. In fact, 
I love how authentic the New Testament writers are. Uh, Luke in the book of Acts, which documents what happens after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. So Luke actually traveled with Paul. He was traveling with Paul. They had a seven-day stop in Troas. It was the last night that they were going to be there. They were in this upper room together, and Paul was talking to and instructing this fairly new group of Christians. And here's what Luke tells us. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul, and I love this, talked on and on. And Eutychus, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground. See, I'm not going to be offended if you fall asleep when I preach. He fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. And we're told that Paul like runs down, heals the kid, and then what does he do? He goes back upstairs and keeps talking until morning. Okay, so two things. I don't ever want to hear any of you talking about our services being too long, all right? And second, Paul was a verified rabbit trail guy, and he knows he's under the constant threat of death. So he's always just trying to get as much out as he can because he knows his time is limited and short. And so uh, he'll go down this one train of thought, and that train of thought will make him think about something else, and he'll go off in that direction for a little bit, and then he'll be like, oh, I need to come back and finish that thought, which means that at times Romans is just difficult to understand. But fortunately, there have been lots of smart men and women who have just studied this and dug into this in depth. And so I'm going to try and condense down his main point, his primary point, because it's so extraordinarily important and helpful. Now, so for some of you, this may be review. For many of you, this will be brand new. And I'm giving you permission to argue and push back against anything I say uh, in your mind. And then if you ever want to meet face-to-face, like during this series, you let me know. I'm good to do that. Uh, Because this is extraordinarily, extraordinarily important. Because here's what we all have in common. There is something, there are some things that you wish that you quit doing. There are some things you wish you could quit doing but you can't seem to quit. It's like there's some sort of power. There's some sort of power, and Paul's going, I'd like to explain that. For others of you, there's things that you need to start doing. And internally, you know you need to make some changes, but you just, it's like you can't. And you've tried everything. So we're going deep, and I'm going to try to go slow, but you're the most sophisticated audience in the world, so I know that you're going to be able to handle this, okay? So Romans 5, we're kind of jumping in the middle. Paul says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, and he's referring to something he's going to talk about later, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And this becomes our first speed bump. Because in order to understand your true problem and solution, you have to acknowledge the reality about you. And Paul says, Paul says, even though he hasn't met you, the reality of you is you're ungodly. And see, now we're all offended. Call me ungodly, okay? But see, here's what he means. Very few people would say, I'm ungodly. Here's what we'd say. Nobody's perfect. We never say, I'm ungodly. We say, I'm I'm just not perfect. I'm not perfect. So we'll use that term. You are imperfect. God is perfect. Let's change the prefix to un, which means that you are unperfect, and God is perfect. So you are unlike God, which means you are ungodly, okay? He says, I'm not saying that you're ungodly because you're a bad person. I'm not saying ungodly, it's just that you're, because you're bad, it's just that you're not God. 
So you're ungodly because we're not perfect and God is perfect. Every world religion considers their version of God to be the embodiment of perfection of all things. But you're not, so you're ungodly. So turn to someone. This might be cathartic. Just turn to somebody next to you. Look at them and just say, you're ungodly. Go, no, I mean it. Do it. <laughs> you're ungodly. You need to hear it. Okay, see, some of you just wanted to say, add something to that. Like, you're ungodly. Okay, so we're all on the same playing field. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, someone that's all like pure and holy, like at least in their eyes, though for a good person, someone we might see as good or a friend or someone we love or someone we feel like is an innocent victim, somebody might possibly dare to die. But but God demonstrates His own love in this, which puts His love in a different category. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right, great, Paul. Now you're calling me a sinner. Okay, uh, you know what? It gets worse because later on it's not just sinners. He calls us enemies of God. Okay, so it gets worse. Now, here's why this is so important. Paul is saying literally, the day that Jesus was being nailed to the cross outside Jerusalem, on that very day, in that very moment, I and my friends were not that far away and we were sinning our brains out. Okay, in the very moment that we were sinning our brains out, Christ was literally, physically being beaten, tortured, and crucified, dying for me, an ungodly sinner, while I was sinning, while I was his enemy. Who does that? Every once in a while, somebody would lay down his life for a good person, but who would die for an enemy, for the crimes of another person while they're committing those crimes, for the sins of another person in the moment that that person was an enemy or sinning. So for Paul, you need to understand, this was in real time for Paul. And Paul's like, it hit me that while Jesus was being nailed to the cross for me, I was out sinning in the moment that he died for those very sins. Who would do that? So God says, or Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what this means for us 2,000 years later is that in the moment that Christ died, He died for you and I ahead of time with no guarantee that we would receive it. He died for your past sins, the ones that you're going to commit after you drive off the parking lot today or log off, uh, the ones you're going to commit later this week, the ones that you commit in the future. Who would do that? Now, if you're following his argument, you go, okay, hold on, I'm, I'm not perfect, but come on, Paul, ungodly sinner? Like, really? Seriously? Is it some, because of something I did? And the Apostle Paul, would, he changes directions, and then he takes us into the, some of the most complex and deepest, most significant teaching in all the New Testament. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, that death was on the heels of sin, and in this way, Death came to all people because all sinned. And then he loses his train of thought and he goes somewhere else and then he comes back. But right here he lives, leaves this big, giant, important thought hanging there. And this is so important. He's saying, I want you to think of sin as a noun, not a verb. That 
Think of sin as a thing, that once upon a time, this thing, this power called sin, let's call it a disease, that once upon a time, this disease of sin was not in the world. There was no sin, none of this disease in the world, and then this disease of sin entered the world. Okay, Paul, how did that happen? Sin entered the world through one man, through patient zero. And in 2021, we get this concept. And he's going to explain in a moment that he's talking about Adam. And when Adam verb sinned, noun sin entered the world like a disease. And FYI, for those of us that are Jesus followers, we don't take Adam seriously because the Bible tells us that we should take Adam seriously. We take Adam seriously because hundreds of witnesses confirmed that a Jewish nobody carpenter from Nazareth, Jesus, predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection. And Jesus took Adam seriously. And if someone can predict and pull off their own death and resurrection, then it stands the reason we should take them seriously. Now, this is so important for us to understand. Paul doesn't describe sin as just an activity or as a verb, but as a thing that results in a verb, that it's a noun that results in verbs, a sin that results in sinning. And one of the reasons that you've not been able to change things about you, that you want to change, is because you've been approaching it as nothing more than behavior management. And it's more involved than that. You've addressed verbs, but not the noun. And Paul says sin is a thing. It's a virus. It's a force. It's a power. It's whatever you want to call it. And it entered the world through patient zero, Adam. And with his sin, death came through him. And no mask, no vaccine, no medicine could ever stop the death that came as a result. And in your life, you've experienced this. Sin kills things. It always kills things. Because you or someone close to you sinned, and it literally means to miss the mark. And what happens is when you miss the mark, you inadvertently hit something or someone that you never intended to hit. You sinned or they sinned, and a relationship was killed. You sinned, and your finances were killed. You killed a career. You killed a relationship, maybe with your parents or your children or someone close to you, or you, somebody, you or someone close to you uh, ended up with a bad addiction, and it, you saw the death that follows. Maybe someone was literally physically killed or injured because of your sin or someone else's. He says, wherever sin goes, death is right behind it. And you know, the reason you know that you're ungodly or not godly is because you're dying. We're all dying. Because when sin entered the world, death came with it. Now, again, if you're not a Christian, I know you'll push back on this, and that's okay. I'm just saying that you should at least consider this one man's explanation of the relationship between sin and death and why we can't seem to do what we want to do or know we should do. Patient zero sinned, sin entered the world, and on the heels of sin came death. He goes on, and in this way, death came to all people because all sin, to which we go, okay, so death came to me because eventually in my life I sinned. And Paul says, would say, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. And this, and this is just so powerful that you, 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 you've got to follow me on this. So once upon a time, there was just Adam. There was just Adam. And because Adam was the first man, there's a sense in which we were all in Adam. 
And uh, Paul will explain this later. So because Adam was the first person, uh, we're all in Adam, and, th- and through Adam, sin entered the world. Uh, because we're all in Adam, we therefore are all in sin. Everybody is in sin. So to kind of put this in perspective, uh, let's see, here, here's me, okay? Adam brought sin in, and so I'm in Adam. Uh, this is my wife, my wife who I love. I'm going to set her here for a moment. Uh, and then uh, you got Billy Graham. Were you born in Adam? Yes. Okay, so in sin, uh, his kids, Franklin, the, all the grandkids. For me, all of my future grandkids that aren't born yet, just looking forward to a whole bunch of them. Okay, uh, so here, here's uh, you know, my four boys. Uh, were they in sin? Uh, it arrived at ages 2 and about 15, absolutely, okay? So, uh, yes, in, in sin. Uh, ladies, like, you know, you're, you're all so sweet, and a lot of you someday, you're going to be like this sweet, gentle grandma that your grandkids love. You might have blue hair in sin, okay? Everybody, like, just everybody. And Shauna, I love you, babe, in sin. So, like, everybody, like, we just, we, it, it, it couldn't be helped, Okay? So, here's the problem, is through Adam, everything got contaminated, and it was passed on to the entire human race, which means our problem isn't our sinning. Our problem is is that we are born in sin. We're born a sinner. Your problem isn't you're sinning. Your problem is that you and I were born a sinner. And the reason you were born a sinner isn't because of anything you did. It's because of who you're related to. To which you say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. But remember, fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. Nothing has been fair since the Garden. For example, some of you are, are at a much higher risk for a major health problem due to heart disease or to cancer. Why? Because of who you are genetically related to. It's not that you did anything. It's just who you're related to. And that gets passed on to you. Some of you, you like me, have held a baby that was born with a disease or a deformity or a disorder as a result of a mom or a dad that lived an irresponsible life. I have held babies born addicted to drugs. And they cry. And they cry. And so many of them die. And, and you hold this struggling, crying baby, and you say, this is not fair. It's not fair. But it's true. It's not fair. It's tragic, but it's true. It's just so unfair because that baby did nothing to deserve it. But it's true. And Paul says, whether you think it's fair or not, it's true. You were born in Adam. Born a sinner, which is why no one has to teach you to sin. Like, you ever notice that? Didn't have to have a class. Why? Because you were born in sin through Adam, through whom sin entered the world, through his one activity, his one behavior, his one trespass. He became patient zero that passed it to everyone. And as a result, sin infected the entire human race it would follow. And it usually hits somewhere between about 18 months and two years old. Okay, it kicks in. It's like, oh, he's so precious. He's so precious. And then like, boom, like, whoa, what happened? Like, never saw that in any. Paul goes, I'll tell you what happened. He was born 
in sin, and she was born in sin. It's been there the whole time, but it just, just showed up just now. And it's big, and it's bad, and it's ugly if it is left unchecked, and it can be nasty. And wherever sin goes, death goes with it every time. And eventually, every single human being realizes there is something in me that I can't control. There's something in me that is out of my power to correct. And I'm just telling you, it originated with patient zero, and I'm telling you this because it's so important as we move forward. Now, he begins to draw a contrast, but this is where we can begin to lose focus because he just kind of gets a little complicated. Paul says, but the gift is not like the trespass. Well, what gift? What are you talking about? In a minute, he's going to tell us that the gift, the gift is the gift of repairing, of restoring a right standing with God, as if we never sinned. The gift of justification to where God looks at you or looks at me and says, I see you as someone completely forgiven. I see you as someone as if you never sinned. And it's a gift that God gives to us, but it, the gift is not like the trespass. Well, what trespass? Well, it was the one act of Adam that condemned all men and women. But this gift that you receive when you become a believer is different than the trespass. Well, how, Paul? For if the many died by the trespass, many, all, okay, all of us in Adam, born, infected, separated from God, in sin because of the one trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. What he says is that you need to, you need to understand that you were, born, uh, you were born in Adam. Okay, but when you decide to put your faith in Jesus Christ and put your trust in Him, we'll start with my wife, you're taken out of Adam and you're put into Christ. So you're moved from in Adam to in Christ. And then in the next few verses, he is... Uh, saying he's trying to contrast these things, that, that everything that you have experienced of being in Adam, when you put your faith in, in Christ, you become in Christ. You're placed in Christ. Or in some of you, you've heard something like that. Maybe when you became a Christian, for those of you who are Christians, somebody in the church or whoever talked to you said, well, now you're in Christ. Or that at the very least, that when you become a Christian, you get to go to heaven when you die. And that's all true. But Paul never mentions he- heaven or hell in this discussion because this discussion is aimed towards people that are asking, why is it that it seems like I can't do what I want to do or what I know I should do or what I ought to do? Why is it that it seems like there's this thing in me at times that just overrides my will and though I eventually hurt people that I care about and I know it's going to hurt people I care about and I'm going to regret and I'm going to wish that I hadn't done it, but I do it anyways. What is that? And is there a way to escape it? And Paul says, hang with me, because all that's driven by having been born here, by being born in Adam. He says, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many by the trespass of the one, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more does God's grace and the gift that comes by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Now, can the gift of God not, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin. He says this in Adam is a result of one thing. This is something else. 
He says the judgment, the judgment followed the one sin and brought condemnation. Now this is where we begin to push back from Christianity because we hear Paul saying, you're bad, you're judged, you're condemned. But that's not what he's saying. Paul is saying, uh, his point simply is that you're condemned, you're dying, but not because of anything we did, but because we were born from the one man, Adam, who was condemned because of his one activity of rebelling against God. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. To which if you grew up in church and you go, and that means I get to go, he- go to heaven when I die. And Paul would say, that's not what I'm talking about. It's more practical than heaven when you die. Heaven when you die is someday, somewhere, sometime. Paul's saying, I'm talking about the implications of this right now in your day-to-day life. Because we know what this is like right now. Right now, is, it looks like I simply can't consistently do what I know I ought to do. And what I think God wants me to do. So I can't please God. I can't even please myself. I just can't be consistent in the areas of my life. And it's because this dwells in me. And this dwells in you. Paul says, I've got some great news. Moving. Moving from Adam to in Christ is deeper than you may understand. It's not just about what happens when you die. It's about living and having a life and a lifestyle now that applies here and now. To which we say, Paul... If you're just going to tell me to try harder, I feel I might need to throat punch you. Okay? Because that's what I've been doing. And it's not working. It's not changing. And he's going, no, this, this isn't about what you try. This is about what's already true. This is what's already become true of you. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, because sin results in death, how much more will those who receive or choose to receive, because it's a gift offered, not forced, how much more will those who choose to receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, where does he say they will reign? In life. Now. Not Someday, not someday when I'm perfect and I got you know, all my junk and worked out and my act together or someday in heaven. No, he's saying, I'm telling you, all the power that seems to overpower you is because you were born a condemned sinner in Adam. But now you have an alternative. You can reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, here's why this is so important. If you ever read the New Testament, and I think everyone should, and especially when you read the letters of Paul, you'll keep running into phrases like in Christ, through Christ, in Christ. Some of you may have heard uh, the verse that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, what does he mean through Christ? And this is where we're going for the next few weeks. He means having placed your faith and placing your life in Christ, you have a new mode of operation for your life. See, we, all, we know all too well what life in Adam or through Adam looks like, which overpowers you with the power of sin. So the question is, is it actually possible? Is it actually possible to live through Christ in a way that overpowers, that overpowers life through Adam and sin? And that's the crucial question 
that we're going to deal with. Paul wraps up, consequently, just as one trespass, which is Adam's sin, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, Jesus dying on the cross, paying for the penalty of sin, resulted in justification and resulted in life, not death. And not just for the nation of Israel, which is why Paul says, but for all people. He's saying Adam did something wrong, which affected everyone. Jesus did something right, and it has undone what Adam did for those that will receive it. Jesus, in his one act of obedience that mirrors the one act of disobedience, has provided a way for us not simply to go to heaven when we die, but to live a new kind of life. It would be a great name for a church. New life. He wraps up. For just as through the disobedience of the one man Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And we're going to stop there and pick it up next week. I'm going to wrap it up this way for you. Paul's saying, if your approach to your Christian life is, God, thank you so much. Thank you for forgiving my sins and for saving me. And because of that, now I'm going to do my very best to be like Jesus and do the right thing and do what Jesus wants me to do, Paul would say, well, good luck with that. Paul would say, listen, it was from that vantage point that I wrote how I love God, I know God, I know what I should do, but I can't seem to do what I ought to do. Why do I consistently do what I don't want to do and not do the things that I should do? I'm committed to God and doing the right things I don't need another sermon. I don't need another Ten Commandments. I don't need another self-help book. I'm so grateful to God, and I know what to do. I just can't seem to do it. With any consistency, Paul says there are massive great news uh, implications when we really accept what God has done through Christ and being taken out of Adam and placed into Christ by placing our faith in Christ, that when that happens, whether we realize it or not, a seismic, fundamental shift has happened. And maybe we missed it because the Apostle Paul dictated it and it's so complicated. But maybe we missed it because, and it's okay, it's natural. Our natural mode of operation when somebody does something really good for us is we want to do something good back. Our natural mode of operation with God is like, God, you did this great thing back, so now I want to do great back to you. And, and that's okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But God would say, listen, you know, If you say to me, like, I'm going to live a better life, and God would say, well, it's going to just be more the same life, but now church on Sundays, and maybe a small group. Paul says there has to be a fundamental change at the core of who you are. And in the verses and chapters that follow, I want to help teach us how to live this out. Just as you've been so naturally accustomed to living out of this, that we together would become more naturally accustomed to live out of this, and live through Christ. It's just bigger than heaven when you die. It's about reigning in this life, about those things that dominate you now. It's like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. She gets to the end of this like hour and a half movie, and it's like you went through all this stuff, but you had the solution right on your feet the whole time. I did? Yeah, click them. You know, it's just like uh, the this, this struggle. It's, you're a little bit like Frodo. Like he knew a little bit about this ring, 
But this, as the story goes on, he discovers more and more of the power of not really realizing what he had. Or Elizabeth Swan and the Pirates of the Caribbean. She thought it was just a medallion. She had no idea the significance of what she actually already had and what it would do. But she discovers it so, it's so much more. And in some ways, many of us, for whatever reason, we just didn't realize what's available to us. And, in, in your, and we're not alone, because Paul, a little later in writing to these Roman Christians, he says, did you not know? And they're like, no, we didn't know. We just thought it was like, be good, and you know, Jesus did good, and now we do good back. He's like, no, it's so much more than that, and that's where we're going to go for the next few weeks. So let's, let me pray for us. Father, I pray for all of us that you would help us with this, because no matter where someone is that's listening to me, we're all in the same boat in different places on the faith spectrum, but Father, we all battled this. And so I pray that today and over the next few weeks that you would reveal something to us that maybe we just never understood fully before, that you would just shed light on it, that you would open our minds and hearts, and that you would equip us with what is needed and an understanding that we could break free from the things that hold us back or keep us in repeat behaviors that we desperately want to change. And that you would give us success, not only for ourselves, but for all the people that we love and who love us. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.